Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Often, when we think about the history of North America, it is usually framed within the great rivalry between the European imperial powers. In Canada, this is almost always framed as an Anglo-French struggle for continental dominance. However, this traditional narrative ignores the incredibly important and influential indigenous groups that existed during the 16th, 17th, and 18th century in a particular form of power. It was never just the British and the French competing for the land. It was always an Anglo-French-Indigenous struggle. For the British, in what is today New England and the Maritimes, their greatest threat was not, in fact, from their long-time European enemies— but from a powerful indigenous alliance seeking to protect their traditional territory from British encroachment. This alliance would fight a series of major wars to defend their land, and the frontier between them and the British would be a place of death, destruction, and carnage for a century. This was a place where the lines between soldier and civilian were blurred, in a fight ultimately for the very survival of a people. This is Season 5, Episode 16, The Wabanaki Confederacy. Today's book recommendation is Homelands and Empires, Indigenous Spaces, Imperial Fictions, and Competition for Territory in Northeastern North America, 1690-1763, by Jeffers Lennox, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2017. This book is an excellent blending of the imperial struggle in this region with the long-standing indigenous rivalries presented long before European arrival. It highlights how important indigenous alliances were and the crucial role various indigenous groups, including the Wabanaki, played 
in the eventual outcome of continental conflict. Okay, the beginnings of the Wabanaki Confederacy, or People of the Sunrise Country, stem from a period of endemic warfare during the 17th century. Starting sometime in the early 17th century, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, known more commonly as the Five Nations Iroquois, had been engaged in a decades-long war of expansion, conquering neighboring tribes, forcibly adopting the survivors into the Haudenosaunee tribal structure, and increasing in both size and wealth. This confederacy was an alliance of Iroquois-speaking tribes, the Mohawk, Seneca, Onondaga, Oneida, and Cayuga. The motivation for their expansion was control of trade routes. They understood that by controlling trade routes, particularly the valuable fur trading routes, they could effectively create a monopoly over economic interaction with the small but steadily expanding European populations dotting the eastern half of the continent in areas of modern-day eastern Canada and the northeastern United States. These trade routes brought wealth in the form of material goods and weapons. Thus, the Haudenosaunee aggressively expanded their borders. By around the 1640s, the Haudenosaunee had expanded so much that they bumped up against a collection of Algonquian-speaking tribes living in parts of modern-day eastern Quebec, the Maritimes, and the New England states. The Haudenosaunee threat was well understood by these Algonquian-speaking groups. In fact, the very existence of these Algonquian tribes was at stake. One of the fascinating commonalities between these Algonquian-speaking tribes, besides language, of course, was that they all recognized a shared ancestral homeland called Wabanaki. Thus, in the face of what was effectively an existential threat, five of the main Algonquian-speaking tribes met at the council fire and committed to an alliance to defeat the aggressive Haudenosaunee. These tribes were the Western Abenaki, the Penobscot or Eastern Abenaki, the Passamaquoddy, the Maliseet, and the most powerful of the tribes, the Mi'kmaq. Now, the Haudenosaunee had so far relied on encountering individual tribes who could not stand up to the resources and numbers that the Haudenosaunee could bring to battle. Yet, this time, the Haudenosaunee encountered an enemy relatively equal in size and determined to defend their ancestral territory. As a united confederacy, the Wabanaki were thus successful in defending their land from the dominant Five Nations Confederacy. In fact, the Wabanaki inflicted such damage to their enemies that representatives of the Five Nations reached out at some point in the later mid-century to negotiate a permanent peace between the two main alliance groups. The Five Nations agreed to cease their expansionist efforts into Wabanaki lands while continuing to expand elsewhere. The Wabanaki, 
had thus secured their borders from one of the most powerful confederacies in all of what would become North America. At this point, so we're somewhere in the mid to early later 17th century, the Wabanaki claim to their ancestral homeland stretched as far north as Newfoundland and as far south as the Merrimack River in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. This river, in fact, would become a bloody front line as New England settlers began to push past the river and settle deeper and deeper into Wabanaki territory. More importantly, the successful defense against the Five Nations' expansion cemented the ties between the five tribes of the Wabanaki. As well, the defensive wars against such a powerful confederacy turned them into both a political and military power in the northeastern region of the Atlantic seaboard. The military and political power of the Wabanaki would soon find itself facing a whole new rival in the last quarter of the 17th century, that of the British and their settlers in New England. Folks, I just want to take a second and let you know that we rely exclusively on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate, for instance, two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. Your donations are incredibly important to allow us to continue to bring you this program. And we thank all of those who have already donated. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. So please don't be shy. And thank you to everyone again who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. So let's kind of set the stage for the Wabanaki-British rivalry. You see, it's not that the Wabanaki had no experience with European settlers. Throughout the 17th century, French settlers in particular were allowed to settle in parts of Wabanaki territory, mostly in modern-day Nova Scotia. And these French Catholic communities continued to grow in size. The relationship between these Acadians as they came to call themselves, and the Wabanaki, particularly the powerful Micmac, was quite good. Actually, surprisingly good, considering the history of relationships between the European arrivals and indigenous groups in the region. The two communities traded, and they supported each other economically. Catholic priests roamed pretty freely throughout Wabanaki land and in Wabanaki villages. There were even instances of intermarriage, particularly between Acadian men and Mi'kmaq women. Considering the brutalities of imperialism during this period, arguably nowhere else on the continent was there as cordial a relationship between a European settler population and an indigenous one. But we must keep in mind that all of this was rooted in the fact that the Acadian population was effectively at the mercy of the Wabanaki tribes. Were the Acadians to anger them, it was not out of the question that the Acadian population could find themselves seriously under threat 
and could be utterly destroyed by the well-organized and militarized Wabanaki peoples. Effectively, the power lay with the Wabanaki, not the Acadians. This Wabanaki-Acadian power dynamic would become an important aspect of the volatile French-English-Indigenous rivalry throughout this area of the continent. You see, by the last quarter of the 17th century, the French and English were engaging in regular military conflicts for control of their portions of the New World. Indigenous alliances were key to this conflict, particularly in providing warriors skilled at fighting in the dense forests of the region. Wabanaki territory became a key battleground between the French and English in what is today Maine, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. The English allied themselves with the Mohawk, the leading nation of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Five Nations Confederacy we've met already. The Wabanaki, unsurprisingly, became key allies to the French cause. Thus, the rivalry of long-standing indigenous enemies merged with larger global European imperial rivalries. For the Wabanaki, their primary concern was English settlement expanding into Wabanaki lands. In 1676, this concern erupted in what is known as the First Anglo-Wabanaki War, in New England commonly referred to as King Philip's War. This was the first of what would be eight major wars over the next century, pitting the Wabanaki Confederacy against New England settlers in the British Empire. Broadly speaking, the objectives of the Wabanaki during these wars were to push back the New England settlers expanding steadily into Wabanaki territory. The territory of modern-day northern Maine, southern New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia in particular became violent and brutal theaters of war. Because of the much smaller size of the Acadian population, Wabanaki warriors often made up the bulk of the anti-British forces. While pitched battles between soldiers were quite rare, it was more common in this area for both sides to lead military raids against villages and towns along the border region. This meant that there was rarely, if ever, any distinction by either side between civilian and soldier. New England militia would attack Wabanaki and Acadian communities, and Wabanaki-Acadian contingents would do the same to New England communities. Women, children, the young and the old were rarely spared. Those civilians not killed were often led away into slavery by their indigenous captors, captured Acadians sent deep into Mohawk territory, captured New Englanders deep into Wabanaki territory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One of the most 
Infamous examples of this brutal frontier warfare was the Deerfield Massacre of 1704. This occurred during what was known as Queen Anne's War, known in Europe as the War of Spanish Succession. What happened is that a combined French indigenous force attacked the small town of Deerfield in Massachusetts near the Connecticut River. Just before dawn on the 29th of February, 240 Wabanaki warriors and about 50 French soldiers, a mix of French regulars and Acadian militia, stormed into the town of Deerfield while it slept. Of its 291 inhabitants, only 126 remained the next day, while half of the town had been burnt to the ground. Dozens of civilians were killed in the attack, and 109 were led away into captivity. While this Deerfield Raid, or Deerfield Massacre, depending on what side of the conflict you were on, was a brutal example of the warfare along the Wabanaki English frontier, it was only one of many. During the 1740s, for instance, in what was known as King George's War in North America, or in Europe, the War of Austrian Succession, it is estimated that 8% of the male population of New England was completely wiped out. While at first the Wabanaki were fairly successful in holding back the tide of New England settlement, by the 18th century they encountered greater difficulties in maintaining the boundaries as the New Englanders and the British Empire behind them slowly but steadily expanded their presence deeper into Wabanaki territory. Like many First Nations, disease was one of the key factors that enabled this. A series of epidemics had ravaged the Wabanaki tribes, putting them at a serious disadvantage against the growing manpower of the British Empire and her settlers. Furthermore, the Wabanaki could only rely on a much smaller Acadian population for support. Combined, the Wabanaki-Acadian alliance was outnumbered significantly by the growing numbers of British settlers. Even the ability for the French to get weapons and supplies to the Wabanaki-Acadian alliance was severely obstructed by British naval dominance of the Atlantic Ocean. As well, several peace treaties signed between the French and the British saw the French formerly cede chunks of traditional Wabanaki lands with little regard for the Wabanaki themselves. The Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, for instance, which ended the War of Spanish Succession, gave the British Newfoundland and recognized their suzerainty over modern-day Nova Scotia. This is huge tracts of traditional Wabanaki territory, and the Wabanaki were never consulted on this handover of land. Slowly but surely, the Wabanaki were becoming outnumbered and outgunned, and strategically outmaneuvered. An Anglo-Wabanaki War erupted in 1722 when the British rebuffed Wabanaki attempts at diplomacy. It happened in 1744 when the French and British declared war on each other during the War of Austrian Succession, and again war erupted in 1749 when the British decided to permanently settle the town of Halifax and begin construction on Fort George. In fact, the outbreak of war in 1749 was known as Father Le Loutre's War 
because it was named after a French Catholic priest that spread the word of the British settlement efforts in Halifax, thus causing the Wabanaki to rise up. It was Father Lelutra's war that would further diminish Wabanaki control over their traditional territory. This war, in fact, was eventually consumed by the larger global conflict known as the Seven Years' War, which officially began in 1756. By this time, the British were going after all the territory once belonging to the Wabanaki. In fact, the mid-18th century was a turning point in the history of the Wabanaki Confederacy. The British now had a permanent foothold in the Maritimes, not to mention the British had only recently conducted a mass deportation of nearly 10,000 Acadians from Wabanaki territory, thus removing a critical ally for the Wabanaki. By 1756, the Wabanaki were already being driven into smaller pockets of resistance while their longtime allies and the Acadians were effectively gone. With the British victory over the French in the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763, the continent now effectively belonged to the British Empire. The Wabanaki were consumed into the larger British North America, yet Wabanaki anger towards the British continued. When, in 1776, American colonists were rising up against the British Empire, the Mi'kmaq and Passamaquoddy tribes signed an alliance with the American colonists, the famous Treaty of Watertown. These two tribes would thus fight alongside the Americans for the remainder of the American War of Independence. In fact, interesting note, because of this treaty and the support these two tribes offered to the Americans, today, Canadian Mi'kmaq and Passamaquoddy can serve in the U.S. military. Sadly, for the Wabanaki, like many of their indigenous cousins, the 19th century would prove to be the death blow for their once great political confederacy. Disease, industrialization, urbanization, and growing immigration from Europe would drive the Wabanaki into smaller and smaller pockets of their ancestral land. While the five tribes continued to exist on the margins of British Canadian society, the Wabanaki Confederacy was formally declared disbanded by the British in 1862. Yet, despite this formal declaration, the five tribes of the Wabanaki continued to exist. The council fire continued to burn, and leaders continued to work together and cooperate in an increasingly hostile world. Their survival during the next century speaks to the enduring power of this once mighty confederacy. In 1993, despite years of quote-unquote not existing, the Wabanaki tribes formally reestablished their confederacy, and the Wabanaki confederacy now lives on today, fighting for the rights of the Mi'kmaq, the Passamaquoddy, the Abenaki, the Penobscot, and the Maliseet, still in the traditional lands of the Sunrise Country. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. 
And you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool.